AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2023, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast highlighting fraud and abuse issues to watch. I'm Shannon Sumner, a Principal and Chief Compliance Officer for PYA in our national office, and I lead our regulatory compliance practice. Joining me today is one of the authors of AHLA's Top 10 Issues in Health Law, Chris Savis of Sherrard Rowe, Voight and Harvison, right here in Nashville. So thank you, Chris, for joining me today. Um, can you tell the audience a bit more about yourself and your practice? Sure. Um, thank you, Shannon. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, obviously, to AHLA for for uh, letting me contribute to the um, to the article and and here on the podcast. Uh, I lead the Government Compliance and Investigations Group uh, here at Sherrard, Ravoit, and Harbison, uh, where I focus on representing uh, individuals and companies under investigation or responding to subpoenas from federal and state government agencies. Uh, healthcare is my largest focus area, but I also have uh, experience in uh, areas like transportation, education, uh, and general government procurement um, from when I was an assistant United States attorney here. Um, we also represent clients in white collar uh, criminal investigations. Um, I do some general litigation and healthcare litigation in areas like antitrust and general business disputes. Uh, and finally, I'm a Rule 31 listed mediator here in Tennessee. Uh, so I do some work as a mediator and an arbitrator. Uh, and I'm listed with uh, AHLA's ADR service. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, want to get right into the article that you contributed. So in your article, you reference the DOJ's $5.6 billion in total settlements and judgments related to healthcare fraud in 2021. And we all know that due to COVID, um, government activity shifted a bit due to the lockdowns. However, do you foresee a recalibration of government enforcement activities in, in this year, 2023? You know, I, I don't foresee, and, and Lord knows I'm not clairvoyant, uh, but I don't foresee a, a major shift coming as it relates to, to health care, um, which, is, which is obviously the focus of, of what we're talking about. Um, of that, you know, when that 5.6 billion number hit, a lot of people noted that it was uh, a rather large uptick over the, the couple of years prior. Um, but when you look behind that that large kind of eye-catching number a little bit, uh, over $3 billion uh, of that number uh, came from two opioid-related settlements. Um, and much of, of the rest that DOJ uh, focused on in its annual press release uh, continued uh, trends from, from before and trends that, that I discussed a bit uh, in my article, um, issues like managed care, um, you know, health IT issues relating to cybersecurity and EHR systems. Uh, and of course, kickbacks, which you know still are create uh, make up a very sizable uh, amount of of DOJ's fraud enforcement efforts, particularly in the healthcare arena. Um, I think we may see some additional focus on PPP fraud, uh, as those those matters kind of wind themselves through the system. Um, you know, particularly any ketam matters that that take some time to investigate. Um, but I think much of that is going to depend on how aggressive uh, the department is. Uh, 
uh, in going after those cases. Um, you know, for example, uh, many of those cases, you know, in 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 with healthcare uh, companies and and, and individual work, individuals working in healthcare and outside of healthcare, you know, many of those PPP cases to date have focused on issues like false tax returns or some other obviously false data submitted to the government. Um, I'm very interested to see how far uh, DOJ is going to go uh, in investigating whether, for example, certain PPP loans were really needed by the recipient. Um, and I think that that how aggressive a stance uh, the department takes on that could dictate uh, how much of, of that, um, uh, how much we see those efforts grow uh, in the next year or two. Well, you know, I feel like there's been a lot of activity over the last couple of months. And so there was the recent, back in September of 2022, the, the DOJ memorandum. And the title of it was um, Further Revisions to Corporate Criminal Enforcement Policies Following Discussions with Corporate Crime Advisory Group. What a title. Um, but that <laughs> combined with the OIG's revisions of certain uh, language and, and certain uh, corporate integrity agreements regarding really the role of compliance officers and compliance committees. And I'm really thinking of the, the Biotronic and the Vision Quest um, CIAs over the last couple of years. But do you feel that 2023 will see an increase in government enforcement activity, particularly through corporate integrity agreements? Yeah, and, and these documents have raised some 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 themes that have kind of you know been been just under the surface for for years, going back to to when I was in AUSA and, and we talked about uh, talked about them there. Yeah, I don't again, I don't know about you know overall enforcement activity, but I certainly uh, do see an increased focus um, on the nature of uh, corporate criminal investigations, uh, both inside and outside of the healthcare space. Um, a focus on on how DOJ is going to keep um, both individuals and corporations accountable for what they see as as criminal conduct. Um, you know, this this discussion goes back uh, in a large degree to the Yates memo back in 2015, uh, which which focused a lot on individual liability uh, in criminal matters um, as well as in, in civil fraud enforcement matters. Uh, and there have been a, a number of, of changes in focus kind of back and forth between uh, the administrations. Uh, but but I think that that these recent documents indicate a, a signal again toward a focus on on more aggression in this in this space. Um, you know, the Monaco memorandum to to give it a, a, a shorter title, um, and the changes uh, to the CIA language seem focused on effective compliance programs and individual accountability. Uh, there's also a lot of discussion about corporate cooperation, uh, which is a topic that is spoken about frequently, but has not always been well-defined uh, and often means something different to prosecutors than it does to defense attorneys. Uh, and so, you know, the, kind of thematically here, I think AH, uh, HHS uh, is clearly contemplating an expanded role for compliance committees um, through the, uh, the new language in the CIAs that you reference. Uh, I think DOJ uh, is focused on the importance of timeliness in corporate cooperation in criminal investigations. Um, you know, one of the goals of having corporate cooperation is to be able to uh, hold the individuals uh, who perpetrated the alleged fraud responsible and certainly having as much information as you can as a prosecutor in a timely manner is going to make uh, taking those steps a lot easier. Um, and it's not just about timeliness, but, you know, voluntary disclosure of records. There's a very interesting 
uh, section in that memo to me that talks about um, records uh, that could be seen as protected by data privacy laws in foreign countries and the fact that the department is going to recognize willingness to provide those documents rather than, you know, uh, uh, shield them through those through those data privacy laws. I think that's a really interesting passage and it's going to be interesting to see how the department um, uh, focuses on that particular area. Um, and there's, you know, the memo also focuses on the importance of corporate compliance history uh, in seeking resolutions, um, which, which again, will be interesting how the government factors in prior uh, alleged uh, compliance issues. And, and one thing that, that I like seeing in there and that I think most defense attorneys will like seeing is, is a focus on transparency uh, and the department being willing to, to share information about its uh, corporate cooperation policies uh, with with the public and, and with the defense bar. And we'll just have to see how much transparency we actually get. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I know from, from us working with, certainly with compliance committees and, and boards, it really comes down to, to a lot of it relates to risk, right, for the organization. And so in your article, you mentioned about the DOJ's increased focus. And this is certainly a big risk area for many of our clients in the areas of health IT. And, and electronic health records. But um, what what I wanted to know a little bit more about, as you mentioned about the concept of substantive ele electronic health record fraud. So can you talk about that and maybe provide some examples? Sure. Um, and this is, you know, a, a kind of a, a name that, that I kind of came up with for, for some stuff I've been writing and, and presentations I've given for, for AHLA. Um, it it's, uh, betrays my lack of creativity, I guess, in coming up with cool names. But basically, you know, we've watched uh, EHR-related fraud uh, investigations and, and settlements kind of evolve over the years. Um, you know, when, when I was in AUSA, and, and full disclosure, I, I participated in a couple of these settlements, uh, we had a focus on uh, EHR donation fraud. Uh, and, you know, potential potential kickbacks related to EHR donations. Um, you know, then then we got more into kind of the kickbacks uh, space with regard to meaningful use payments um, and, and that type of thing. And, and to me, kind of the next place I see this going is where you're focusing on more of the, the substantive nature of, of fraud and how the EHR contributes to it. Um, one example, and, and you know, I, when I was in AUSA, I worked uh, on a matter that had some of these allegations, but just speaking generically, um, upcoding, uh, I think, would be a, a big area. So, so, for example, if you are a home health agency and you have to fill out an OASIS form, um, you know, if you have a, an electronic health record system and that system can make suggestions um, for changes uh, that you could make to your OASIS form for, say, the sake of consistency, uh, you know, are we going to be looking at allegations from whistleblowers or from the government that uh, those uh, changes are leading to upcoding of, of the OASIS form, uh, leading to higher payments uh, to, the, to the home health uh, agency? There were there were actually some of these allegations uh, in the KETAM uh, that led to the recent modernizing medicine settlement out of the District of Vermont, uh, and and I was very curious and waiting to see what that what that resolution was going to be to see if it, it touched on any of those issues, and it, it didn't. It actually went in, in different directions. Uh, but there have been a number of, of examples historically, um, you know, somewhat smaller ones, but even going back, you know, a, a few years. Where, where you have an, an electronic health record system 
that uh, allegedly uh, has been part and parcel with the actual, you know, fraudulent claims that have been submitted. And it seems to me like that's a next logical direction for this type of, of EHR related fraud investigation to go. Yeah, that's definitely an area that would encourage certainly our compliance professionals to make sure that that's, that's front and center related to their compliance work plans, particularly for implementing a new electronic health record, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that that I think everyone needs to be aware of on the front end, right? I mean, not not just the the medical practice, for example, that's going to be implementing a new system, but obviously, if you are uh, an EHR uh, developer, uh, you certainly want to be aware of anything that that could be even wrongly interpreted as a compliance related issue. Um, you know, there is nothing wrong with revenue optimization. Revenue optimization is a good thing. Uh, but, you know, any tool that can be used for revenue optimization purposes, or at least I would think most of them have the ability to be abused and, and, and distorted. Uh, and so compliance training on, on, on that and, and monitoring how uh, systems are being employed, uh, I think, is, is critical to avoiding, you know, if not, if not trouble in litigation, certainly expensive investigation costs down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's um, shift gears a little bit. So, um, you know, we understand that historically the DOJ has relied on what's called sub-regulatory guidance in a variety of ways. However, back in 2017 and 2018, um, the Trump administration issued memorandum kind of limiting the DOJ's reliance on this sub-regulatory guidance. But then that stance flipped again with the Biden administration when he issued an executive order instructing agencies to really remove those policies limiting regulatory action. And we know this was the catalyst to the Garland memo. But do you see this as um, perhaps foreshadowing future DOJ enforcement actions? Um, for example, many of us were dealing with the provider relief funding and those terms and conditions were based on ever changing sub regulatory guidance. But where do, you, where do you see that um, that that use of subregulatory guidance coming up in this year and in the following years? It's one of my favorite uh, topics, so thank you for asking about it. Uh, I do think that that those changes in the Garland memo uh, may foreshadow uh, what we're going to see in some investigations uh, in, in the False Claims Act front, um, in, in particular areas. Um, you mentioned provider relief funding. Um, PPP may be another one uh, where you have this dynamic situation like the pandemic where, you know, the agencies are just trying to move as quickly as possible. There's a significant amount of, of, of sub-regulatory guidance flying around. Uh, and, and in those situations, I do think that you may see a, a renewed focus on um, using that type of material in, in bringing uh, fraud allegations. More broadly, um, and and I'm certainly not, this is not a unanimous viewpoint by any means, um, but more broadly, my view is that the number of instances where um, the, the approach to sub-regulatory guidance is going to make a real difference uh, in, in, say, your typical healthcare fraud investigation is, is somewhat limited. Um, I, I actually wrote about this for, you know, one of those other bar associations uh, a little while ago and kind of called it a tempest in a teapot. Uh, because as you've said, you had, you know, a, a change in, in, in the approach to sub-regulatory guidance during, during the Trump administration with the sessions and, and brand memos. You have a, a switch back um, with, um, with the Garland memo. But if you look at, at the 
overall policies of those two memos, they're not incredibly different. Um, I think one thing that demonstrated this was uh, section 1-20 of the Justice Manual, um, which again, full disclosure, I, I, I worked on drafting when I was, uh, it was at DOJ. It's you know, why this is one of my favorite topics. Um, if you look at that section, uh, it, it kind of clarified and expanded on the brand memo. And, and a lot of the language in there is not all that different from what you see in the Garland memo. Uh, what I find interesting is that after the Garland memo came out, if you went and took a look at the, the Justice Manual as it's published on DOJ's website, Section 1-20 is gone. Um, Section 1-19, which kind of has an overall sub-regulatory guidance policy, is still there. But Section 1-20, which was meant to put some meat on those bones uh, during uh, the, the, the Trump administration, uh, is gone. And so I will be very curious over the next year to see whether the department uh, writes something to replace section 1-20 um, and tries to put more meat on the Garland memo or whether it just kind of lets that float and sticks with the language in the Garland memo and says, this is our policy and so much of this is, is case by case um, that we're just gonna leave it at that. Um, so I think that's one interesting development to potentially look for. But again, on, on your kind of standard, you know, run of the mill healthcare fraud investigation to the extent that such a thing exists. Um, I think that that for the most part, um, the, the differences are going to turn out to be less critical than, than sometimes they're made out to be. Interesting. So looking into your, your crystal ball that you have, um, what are some likely enforcement priorities in 2023? Well, my crystal ball is always pretty hazy, but, but I think <laughs> that, that, like I said, I, I don't think there's going to be a massive amount of change. You know, what's passed is prologue. Um, I think that remains true, particularly when you've got um, so much of, of DOJ's fraud enforcement activity, um, uh, you, you know, relying on and based on the actions of whistleblowers and the key TAMs that they bring. Uh, you know, opioids, I think, is going to be continue to be an area. We've had major settlements in that space. A lot of litigation is still going on, um, you know, on the on the opioid front. Um, in this country, and I think that's going to continue. Uh, I think managed care, uh, you're going to continue to see, um, you know, risk score uh, litigation and settlements. Uh, I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, you, despite numerous settlements in that area over the last few years, it seems to continue to come up uh, as an area of investigation, and I think that's going to continue. Um, health IT, you know, we've seen a number of civil and criminal enforcement actions related to cybersecurity. Uh, in the last uh, couple of years at DOJ, the HR matters uh, that I was just talking about, uh, I think that's going to be a, a focus area on both the civil and criminal sides. And, and of course, you know, wrapped into all of that uh, and more is that general kickback uh, uh, theme. Uh, obviously, a significant portion of, of False Claims Act cases in particular that DOJ handles are, are kickback cases. Um, I think you're going to see that continue, um, and it's especially in the areas of health IT and, and opioids, as I just mentioned, um, there's going to be uh, always kickback investigations related to, to those areas. So speaking of that, I understand from your article that there is a uh, interesting case addressing the scope of, of anti-kickback actually pending here in the Middle Tennessee District. So can you speak speak to this? 
Well, I find it interesting anyway, and I hope some other people do. And 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 again, just to be open, I, I represented one of the defendants in this case uh, for a time. I'm I'm not involved in it now, um, and everything I say will be public information. But but there is a case pending down here. It's it's um, actually a a, a um, Medicaid case that is pending in federal court. Uh, the uh, a number of states have have intervened and are proceeding with the litigation. The federal government has not intervened. Um, it's called United States XREL uh, Fulse uh, v. Napper. And uh, in this case, uh, at a motion to dismiss stage, uh, the court, the trial court, the district court uh, ruled that the states, the intervening states, could enforce the federal anti-kickback statute uh, through their respective state false claims acts uh, in relation to uh, Medicaid beneficiaries incurred medical expenses, uh, so their IME payments. These are these are non-covered services that Medicaid patients can use whatever of their own money they have to pay for because they're not covered by the Medicaid program. Um, that that you know the, the court ruled that um, that the states could enforce the AKS in relation to those IME payments uh, for services that. You know, as I said, we're not covered by the state Medicaid program. Uh, I have not seen a precedent to this. Um, I think it's a really interesting application of the anti-kickback statute. And I think it has potential implications for the breadth of, of, of AKS applicability. That's, you know, that case is still in litigation. And to me, it's, it's an important one, important one to watch. Um, to see where that goes if it gets to a summary judgment stage and, and beyond, uh, how how broadly uh, the, the language in the federal AKS is applied to a situation like this could have implications down the line. So I don't think uh, 2023 will be dull. Um, there will be a lot, a lot of areas that we will continue to monitor and hopefully to write more on and more podcasts. And so Chris, thank you once again for your insight regarding the top health law issues in 2023 and for joining me here today. Thank you, Shannon. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for, for doing this as well. And thanks, AHLA. Absolutely. And thank you for AHLA. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.